This is Thank You Heartbreak. Hi, everyone. I'm Chelsea Lee Trescott. As a breakup coach, relationship advice columnist, and the founder of Break Upward, Chelsea is passionate about human beings and their stories. She talks to people about their journeys in love, growth, heartbreak, revelations, and every wounded lesson along the way. This podcast shines a light on heartbreak, showing you that the most crushing experiences are also your greatest opportunity to become meaningful, relatable human beings. Now, let's get to the heart of it. The hardest thing to come to terms with was reality. Mm. You know, like when I saw my dad dead in the coffin, I was like, there's nothing I could do about this. I can't slip the guy at the door $10. I can't use my like mm. best manipulation skills to mm. bring my dad back. I mm. can't beg or plead. Like none of the strengths or abilities that I had to get my way in any circumstance were not going to work. Mm. It was just real. Mm. And so it was like a massive ice bucket of, of reality. And that certain things in life, including death, are unmanipulatable they just are i didn't know that before right. i didn't know that before I, I i really didn't have a relationship to death even when my dad was dying like in the hospital he was like clearly on his last days and the nurse was like you better talk to him because he's out you know i was like he's just gonna wake up any day and be like let's get a pizza you know Hi, everyone. This is Chelsea Lee Truscott, the host of Thank You Heartbreak, and this is episode 262 with Cheryl Feideman, the Conscious Codependence Coach. While this episode focuses on codependency and finding your way into sovereignty, I started with heartbreak because this episode does talk about the ways in which we break our own heart and specifically Cheryl's biggest heartbreak to date, which was losing her father. Why I chose to start with that clip is because for the last few months, especially this last month, that clip has played over and over and over in my head. You know, I remember when I got back onto social media because I, someone that it turns out in my life, now I go missing at times. And I remember like people having this reaction to what I was saying and having these nerves about my confessions. And I was like, oh my God, people shouldn't worry when I'm vocalizing. They should worry when I'm silent. And so I have been silent these last few months. I'll tell you what happened right when Cheryl's episode was supposed to go out and why it turned out that that clip that I played is what just kind of consumed me during this time where I have been missing. My boyfriend and I broke up. I decided not to move to LA, so kind of a certain dream that I thought I had been really intent on seeing through just fell away as well. And the next day after that breakup, my grandmother died, and I was there to see that. Then my uncle died. And then right as I landed back into New York, kind of ready to gain my composure and get back to it, my beloved Zars, my dog, died. I've always really depended on her from the beginning in the midst of my heartbreaks. So when that happened, I just, I thought it would take me out completely. And the line that kept coming to me was the one that Cheryl said about the hardest thing to grasp is reality after death, is the fact that nothing is going to bring them back. As she says, your best manipulation tactics, or like I couldn't flirt with uh, 
the man that came to pick up my dog to cremate her. I couldn't pass him, you know, a hundred dollar bill and be like, instead of bringing me these ashes, could you just bring my dog back to life? Even when he gave me the ashes and I took it all out of the bag and I was unboxing all of this, I remember like looking back in the bag as if my dog was going to be in there. And that was so hard through so many of these moments, seeing my grandmother, hearing about my uncle, seeing my dog and the relationship. You know, even just a relationship can be so final because of how it ends can make me feel like I am never going back to that person. Nothing can bring us back after this. And so there's so much finality around endings. And that felt really severe for me, really severe for me. But what I realized in all of this is, you know, nothing is going to bring who I love back. And I can take a break and I can let myself grieve. But then it's like the days collect. And it hit me, okay, but what is going to bring me back? What is going to bring me back? And what is going to bring me back to a project I began that helped me not only love others, because I learned how to listen to them closely. I learned how everyone can be a guardian angel for you, but it helped me develop a self-love for myself. So yes, nothing can bring others back who we love, but what is going to bring me back to myself and to the project, the passion, the purpose that I have such a love for? And I realized the only thing that is going to be able to do that is me. I have to sit down and say, And so I begin again. So this is me doing that. Where are you in the world? I am in New York. Oh, cool. You were just here. Well, I'm from New York, so I go a few times a year to be with my family. That's nice. Yeah. You know, I listened to you say that after your dad passed away, you moved to California. Well, you did many things. You said you jumped out of an airplane, you studied abroad, but one part was that you moved to California. What did you think that California was going to represent at the time? That's a good question. Thanks for remembering that. Well, I always, like ever since I was a kid, like maybe even less than 10 years old, I always idolized California in my mind. Like someday I'm going to live in California where it's sunny all year round and mm-hmm. there's hippies and you know, I just, I, I didn't like the winter and I just felt like this California vibe would match me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was just always something that I wanted to do, but I didn't know when I was going to do it or if I was going to do it. And so when my dad died, I came up with this idea called No More Dormant Dreams. Mm. So I just did all the things that I had been wanting to do, but hadn't done. Mm. Um, it really shook up the snow globe of my life when my dad died. Which, by the way, someone bought me a New York snow globe. (laughs) And as I was thinking with myself about moving to California, I was taking these pictures with the snow globe, like really thinking about how we need that shakeup at times. Mm. And yet, you know, I think that maybe for some people, when something traumatic, tragic, sudden happens, that's a shakeup. We can rely so much and put our claws down into what is constant. So maybe the place where we're living and we don't want to change that up yet. So it's interesting to hear you say that there's this shakeup emotionally and also just like in the fabric of your existence, you know, your family. And at the same time, you decided to shake up what you knew in terms of also your environment. Yeah. I don't know if I consciously decided it. I don't know if it was like a real solid conscious decision. But I definitely was in reaction. Yeah, I changed everything. I mean, I was going to a really, really, really good college with a sizable scholarship and I quit it. I left. So, yeah, if it was conscious or unconscious or a mixture of the two, I definitely was in shock and in reaction. Mm. Was your dad a dreamer? Um, I don't know. Mm. 
to that question. He's definitely a realist. Like he was a very mm-hmm. practical guy. I don't know if he was a dreamer. You said something so cool about him though that I don't remember the exact thing that you said, but I took it as like don't just like free fall through life. Time is precious. You said something so powerful about how it's only once they die that they open up this portal in your mind. Mm. I would love for you to say more about that because I think that death, especially with loved ones, is such an unknown. I do these videos called Fridays with Vitalmen where I talk about my work, conscious codependence, and I talk about different aspects of codependence, trauma and narcissism and traumatic identity and all of that stuff. One of the videos that I put out is called the Dead Parents Society. And what I was talking about in that video is for a lot of us, there's a portal in life opened up when a parent dies. It's a new phase of life. It's like we graduate into a new phase of life. Mm -hmm. And especially when both parents die, now you're like in this orphan, full adult, there is nobody above you, you know? So it's, it's a, it's a new phase of development. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like, I liken it to LSD, right? Oh my God. Tell me more. You can kind of describe what LSD is to people, but it's experiential. You can't possibly know what it's like unless you experience it. It opens portals in your mind. Mm. And then once those portals are open, life is different. Your brain is different. You have different portals now open to you, different frameworks now open to you that you didn't then have before that LSD trip. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So that's what I was talking about. You know, when a parent dies, it's like, oh, this is now a next phase of life for me. It's the next phase of my development. What was the hardest thing for you to come to terms with in that new stage of development that you're talking about originally? Yeah, because I'm still trying to come to terms with it. It's been 20 years. The hardest thing to come to terms with was reality. Mm. You know, like when I saw my dad dead in the coffin, I was like, there's nothing I could do about this. I can't slip the guy at the door $10. I can't use my like Mm. best manipulation skills to Mm. bring my dad back. I Mm. can't beg or plead. Like none of the like strengths or abilities that I had to get my way in any circumstance were not going to work. It was just real. Mm. And so it was like a, massive ice bucket of of reality Mm. and that certain things in life including death are unmanipulatable they just are i didn't know that before i didn't know that before i i I really didn't have a relationship to death even when my dad was dying like in the hospital he was like clearly on his last days and the nurse was like you better talk to him because he's out you know I was like, he's just going to wake up any day and be like, let's get a pizza, you know? And then I really started like getting to know my dad on a level that I didn't know him when he was alive. How so? Well, I started going, man, I didn't get to ask him this question. You always hear about that, the things you didn't ask. Yeah. It's like, I didn't generate the intimacy, this kind of intimacy with him when he was alive. Yeah. And now it's like, oh man, I didn't get to ask this and I didn't get to ask that. And I still 20 years later come up with questions where I'm like, dad, hey, what about this thing? But it's had me heal my relationship with my mom, like get on an expedited train to heal the relationship with my mom and be so intimate with her and like just be so precious in that relationship and receive her love and like release Mm -hmm. all the stuff from the past. So, yeah, it got me on an expedited train (laughs) to handle the stuff with my mother. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that happened with my dad and my mother is what my career has been born out of. My career being the conscious codependence coach and conscious codependence recovery. So that's my work. I have developed my own methodology for codependence recovery. And Just to share with the audience, what I mean by codependence is when our experience depends on another person, when our reality depends on another person's reality, when we go outside of ourselves as the source of our 
feelings, mm. right? Like, uh, I'm sad, it's your fault. I'm happy, it's your fault. I'm scared, it's your fault. So my whole experience is hooked on another person. And for some people, it's it's moments, it's not their whole experience. So some people either fully identify as a codependent or they're like, oh, I may just have some codependent habits or behaviors here and there that they want to work on. And there was just such massive codependence in my parents' relationship. And then when my dad left, that codependence transferred to me and my mom. And when you say left, you mean left her, not passed away? Yeah. So my mother almost killed my father. And so he had to leave. Years later, he was like, I had to go. Otherwise, he said nobody would be alive to pay for the kids if he Mm. stayed because he would have died. And my dad was the one who worked and made the money. So yeah, so my my dad left when I was six. And so then my mom's psychosis got transferred to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brother too, but my brother was six years older. So he can kind of get on his bike and be like, I'm out of here. This is too crazy, <laughs> you know? So at six years old, you became responsible for helping your mom like fix her mentality. Yeah. Okay, so now it makes sense to me. So your dad leaves. Also, you were aware of the traumatic thing that had happened between them or no? That's a good question. I mean, I was a, I was very, very aware that I was living in a war zone. Because six years old seems so young. It's like, I wonder if I could pull out a memory from when I was six. But you can. You can go back to when you were six and, and so remember what things. What you're saying is you don't remember memories from when you were six or young? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I must. I'm sure. But still, six years old seems so young, and it seems so young to be adulting. And so, you know, when I originally first heard your story, I was like, well, six years old to become the fixer of a family does seem like a huge responsibility. And I'm not discounting that that happens. I know it does, but I'm just like, wow, that's, that's a tall order for such a young child. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good insight. It is a tall order, and a lot of my clients were moved into adult behavior before their level of development was there, right? Especially people with some level of dysfunction with the parents where the child has to lead the parent's Mm. reality, Mm. right? So the roles get switched. And this is very traumatic for children when the roles get switched, where the child is serving the parent's reality more than the parent Mm. is serving the child's reality. This can form codependent behaviors in our adulthood when we get into either romantic relationship. Stuff happens a lot more often in romantic relationships, but it could be also at work or family members where the roles get switched, Mm. where a relationship is a mother-child situation or a father-child situation. So the roles definitely got switched for me. This also happens with uh, sexual abuse. I was molested when I was four. And so when you get introduced to the world as a sexual place before you know the world as a sexual place. I mean, molestation, sexual abuse is traumatic at any age. But when it's that young, and now you go, oh, I didn't know the world was a sexual place. I didn't know I was a sexual being. I didn't know this body that I have, this temple that I have was even a sexual thing. So it shocks the system. And then that can distort your relationship to your own sexual identity and your relationship to sex as an adult in like a million different ways. And so this is another thing that I work on with my clients and in my conscious codependence work is um, is uh, sexual trauma, sex and codependence, um, also becoming codependent to a parent at a young age. So yeah, so from my story, I definitely took care of my mom mentally starting at six. And that, so I became so enmeshed with her that whatever she was doing Whatever it felt like to me, I had to set that aside, right? So I had to set it aside and put all my energy towards her and occur like I was fine. Mm-hmm. And this is a also a huge common behavior or habit of codependence where we people please mm. dissociate from ourselves, notice or ignore our own experience like, ouch, that hurts. I don't like that. I don't, this doesn't feel good. I don't feel safe. Right. So we'll either ignore that or set it aside in order to take care of somebody else's reality. Mm. 
So, and, and I was entrained that way at a very young age. I don't even think I knew I was doing it until right. I started studying codependence. And I'm and, and I was like, oh, so you mean I I don't have to stand there when my mom yells at me. And I can take care of my own self while she's going crazy. You know, it was so foreign to me. And it's not just conceptually, but on a somatic nervous system level, our nervous system, mine in particular, said to me unconsciously, don't worry, Cheryl, I'm going to numb this out the way that this feels. I'm just going to numb it out for you. That way you can take care of your mother. Mm. So a lot of this stuff is like our nervous system on unconscious level protecting us. And then we just get so used to dissociating from ourselves just becomes a habit. Which makes me think about sexual abuse and molestation. When that's being done to someone, isn't the response to dissociate as it's happening? Sometimes it is. I mean, sometimes dissociation happens in the current moment. Like I can't be for sure, but I don't think I dissociated for myself when it happened to me when I was four, because I actually remember enjoying it. I remember going, oh, this was good. The dissociation for me, I think happened over time when it was my brother's friend and I never told anybody. It became this taboo secret. And so I think the dissociation happened with me over time. It just kept compounding. Like every time I saw him and he would come over and I, you know, I, I didn't know how to act and it was a complete secret. I didn't tell anybody. So I think the dissociation just happened more and more over time. And I think this is one of the reasons why, you know, people get molested and they go, why did it take them 30 years to talk about it or 10 years to talk about it or 20 years to talk about it? Well, it's because your shock of that situation can keep reverberating and compounding over time. And it starts to play with you. Like, did that really happen? Was it that I, if I liked it, does it still mean it was bad or like? Right. Have you heard of the game that kids play doctor? Yeah. Because I feel like some kids are, when you're young, you're just like curious. To be molested, can it be this curiosity or is it this intention to harm? Um, I really can only speak to the codependent element of what you're saying because that's my specialty. Mm-hmm. So if somebody is saying yes to something that they don't want to say yes to and they're not honoring the fact that they actually don't feel safe in a moment, then that would be the codependent element of a given of a given situation. Whether somebody is intending to do harm or not, I couldn't tell you that. That would be up to the person involved in what's happening. But, you know, if somebody is allowing somebody into their space just because they don't know how to say no, mm-hmm. or they're feeling no, but they don't know how to say that because they want to be nice and they want the mm-hmm. other person to not be mad at them or not reject them. That would be the codependent element that I can speak to in the proposed situation that you're saying. There's a lot of codependence when a molestation situation happens. Um, There's a lot of codependence when there isn't molestation, you know, like when people are dealing with emotional abuse or just emotional moments where they don't like what's happening. They don't like how it feels. They're going along with the situation, whether it's sexual or emotional or having a dinner they don't want to have, right? Whatever it is, where people are going along and acquiescing and it's mm-hmm. against their true desire. That's the realm to which that I work is just this codependent situations or moments. So how... Do you go about helping someone move from not being able to say no to being able to speak on behalf of what they're uncomfortable with or put up boundaries or even discover what they want and what they don't want? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I have group programs. I also have private programs for individuals and private programs for couples. I bring people through my process called Conscious Codependence Recovery. and. The foundational theory of my work is the three tenets of conscious codependence, the want to be wanted, the need to be needed, and the need to prove oneself. And those that are listening, I'll describe it more later, but you can go to my website, CherylFeitelman.com, and get your free PDF that breaks down the three tenets. 
So they're a great reference point for people to be able to tell when they're in a codependent moment. They're operating from the want to be wanted, the needs to be needed, and the need to prove oneself. And the PDF breaks down the developmental roots and common behavioral patterns of tenants. In the somatic experiencing part of my work, I bring people through the conscious codependence TSE practice. And this is the foundational practice of my work. I train people to learn how to be present and in relationship and in deep intimate connection with the visceral experience of the current moment. Mm. Because in codependence, we're way more connected with somebody else's reality mm. than our own. Mm. 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 So they have to embody themselves too. Yes. Embody themselves. Yes. Which the reason why my work is a process, right? There, I have programs is because to embody oneself can take a lot of work. Mm-hmm. For some of us, myself included, I had to work on being safe enough and giving myself permission to embody myself. Because for a long time, it was like, I can't pause and feel what I'm feeling. So I pause mm-hmm. and feel what I'm feeling. I won't be handling the other person. Mm. I won't be protecting them, pleasing them, serving them, understanding them. So if I put the focus away from another person and onto myself, what happens to that other person? Because it's my responsibility what happens to that other person, which is actually not true. So there's a lot of different layers of learning how to be a sovereign, independent being, which is the slogan of my work, become an independent, sovereign being with boundaries and an open heart. Define sovereign because this word is only, you know, it's only been put in front of me, I feel like within the last year and a half. I don't even know if I even understand exactly what it means. Do you have some sense of understanding or any guess or? Sovereign, I feel like you are for yourself. I don't know. I guess like the words that are coming to me are just like freedom and self empowerment. Obviously, I'm showing how clueless I am. I don't think that's clueless. I think those are good descriptors of sovereignty. And I think it's also possible that there could be some overlap, but also some people may use the word a little differently. From the point of view of my work, being a sovereign being means I know what's happening in my experience that is of my making. Mm. So I know what I'm responsible for. I know what I'm causing. What do you mean of my making? I know what I'm responsible for. I know what I'm causing. Mm -hmm. I know what I'm interpreting. So Mm -hmm. I can separate what you're doing and how you're being from how I'm interpreting it and how I'm receiving it. A lot of us in our codependent moments, we go, you're making me feel this way. You're doing this to me. Right. So we have an experience and we think my experience is all caused by you. Right. If you would just change and if you would just do this, then I can have this freedom to be connected. If you would just, if you would just, right. Mm-hmm. And so in sovereignty, which is the North Star of conscious codependence recovery, we get to be able to tell what is my contribution to this situation? What mm-hmm. is my interpretation? What feeling am I having? That might not be caused by you, but I can see how it was triggered or created by my reaction to you. Mm. Mm. We're in a soup. And what are the ingredients that I put into that soup? And what are the Mm. ingredients that you put into that soup? (laughs) Right? I know that you work with couples. I mean, every situation is different. But on one hand, I could see like, oh, maybe it's easier just to get out of relationships. You know, so you're not blaming anyone else, so you're not pulled in by anyone else. But at the same time, I can imagine that so much of the work and so much of the recovery and the healing happens while you're in a relationship and you're able to catch yourself like, oh, this is a moment where I'm thinking they're causing me to be a certain way, but where I can actually step back and start relating to the situation differently. And we kind of need a person or need a relationship in order to play out our patterns differently. Is there a benefit, and, and I, again, I know that there are harmful relationships you have to get out of, but is there a benefit to actually being in relationship and being in a place where you're trying to heal and grasp the understanding of codependency and course correct it? Well, for some of us codependents, codependence is everywhere. 
Okay. Hmm. We are, you know, in the third tenet of conscious codependence with almost everyone need to prove oneself. I mean, I used to try to prove myself to everybody. I used to want everybody to like me. I used to want everybody to be happy, whether I was dating them or not. So I don't think that we need to be in a romantic relationship in order to highlight these things about Mm. ourselves. Mm. Although romantic relationships, and this is not a unique idea of mine, romantic relationships will highlight all you got. Okay. Mm -hmm. Everything you got, a romantic, <laughs> everything you have, you don't have, every issue. It's everything you're hiding, yeah. yeah. And, it, and you could be hiding it from yourself and you don't even see it. You know, romantic relationships will highlight all your all you can see and all that you can't see. And they're designed to do that. You know, a lot of people go into romantic relationships without having a healing contract. This is a healing contract. That's what romantic relationships are. Mm. And if there's no agreement for that, it's going to happen anyway. And you're going to stumble through it. (laughs) For some people, not everybody. Some people have really fairly well-adjusted romantic situations without having to go through the fire of their (laughs) soul to get there. And for some people... Yeah, that the romantic relationship is a huge access to transformation and healing. Mm. And sometimes people have to be single to get there. You know, I had to be because I couldn't make a romantic relationship work. It was like, I just couldn't make it work. And finally, I was like, let me put this romantic thing down for a couple of years. Yes. Relationship with myself. You know, it's so unique and different for everybody. And also, you know, I work with a lot of couples who, you know, they're married and they've been married for 10, 20, 30 years. And they didn't even realize they were codependent. You know, they, they awaken to it. And they go, well, what do we do now that we're trying to unenmesh? Do we have to get divorced to do that? Right. Get divorced to do that. You actually can use each other as research partners to move through this metamorphosis. And sometimes a relationship has to break in order to recreate. You know, sometimes the house has to be destroyed in order to build a castle. Sometimes people have to go to their respective corners, mm-hmm. go deep in relationship with themselves, and then come back together. So, you know, everybody's situation is a little bit different. The fundamental idea of my couple's work is for each individual to get to know their default really well. Where do you default to when you're triggered? We all default to our own unique place, the place where we had to default to when we were children. Once you get to know your own unique default really well, then you get to know your partner's default really well. Where do they go to when they're triggered? Without taking it personally, without taking their default personally. When you get to know each other's default really well, that's where the deepest, the deepest, deepest intimacy can be between two people. That's, you know, in a nutshell, the process that I bring couples through. Because the default isn't personal because it was there before you. Yeah. And Mm. it wasn't put there by you. Mm. Mm. Although we're really good at blaming the other person for doing that thing to us. Totally. (laughs) Totally. Like you're making me feel invisible. So if you take that personally, then we're not going to connect. But if you know my default and you go, Cheryl, I'm not making you feel invisible. Invisible is where you go when you don't feel safe. You know that about me? Mm. Then now we're intimate. But if you just take my default personally and I do that to you, then there's a lot of disconnect. (laughs) Yeah. Codependency is the illusion of intimacy. Yeah. That was so good. So I'm understanding more like as you talk about this, being able to name, for example, where this trigger comes from, being able to own it as our own. That is actually information that if we bring to our partner allows for intimacy. It invites them to show up for us intimately because like, as you just said, someone could say to you, I'm not doing that to you. That's where you go. Yes. Talk to me about what do we think intimacy looks like as a codependent and what is intimacy actually when we're healed more? That's a good question. So codependence, I say, is the illusion of intimacy because we can confuse enmeshment with intimacy. 
we can confuse enmeshment with feeling safe. I'll use myself, for example, being enmeshed with my mom, knowing how she operated, knowing how to talk to her so she can come back to some sort of sanity, being so close to her mind felt Mm. like intimacy. Mm. And I'm not going to say that's not intimacy, but I'm going to call it codependent intimacy. Because I knew all the ways to manipulate her mind so that mm. she felt safe and I felt safe. It mm. wasn't we're already in safety. That's mm. intimacy. We're mm. already safe. I don't have to do anything to ensure you're in my safety. Mm. We are already safe. We can surrender. We live in a surrendered space. Mm. Codependent intimacy is I got to work and dismiss myself Mm. for you to be safe and for us to be safe and for me to be safe. Wow. Okay. And traumatic identity, it sounded like, you know, when we're triggered and where we go back to, is that the traumatic identity? What does that mean? Yeah. So the traumatic identity is the identity that developed within you in relation to your parents or guardians, psychology or reality. And for, for a lot of us, we are being that traumatic identity for a lot of our life, as opposed to our true nature, which is who you truly are, right? So again, I'll use myself as an example that, you know, getting into my mom's mind and being somebody that can figure her out, being somebody that set myself aside in order to take care of her, that became an identity of mine where I didn't feel myself. I set myself aside. I thought I knew everything. I would, you know, just try to constantly help people and tell them like, this is how you should be. And this is how, you know, and I like had this cool chick identity. Like I'm cool. I'm I'm fine. Like you take care of me or give me anything. Like I'm good. Mm. And that was my traumatic identity. That wasn't me. Mm. That was the identity developed within my trauma that I then became. That's why. Mm-hmm. And that it's not really me. It doesn't mean I'm not responsible for who and how I was being. Mm. And it wasn't me. So this is a big part, the big thing that I do with my clients. I help distinguish between your traumatic identity and your true nature, who you truly are. God, what's wild is just that it can start at such a young age. It's not that it can start at a young age. It just does. You know, from the moment we're born, potentially before that, you know, there's the maternal imprint idea and what happens in utero before that. But just for the purposes of this conversation, as soon as we're born, our identities are being developed, where we are in reaction to our environment. Our identity is in reaction to our environment. You know, to be human is to be traumatized. I think mm-hmm. trauma, ha- the word trauma has this, you know, big, intense reputation, but there's overt trauma and there's covert trauma. Trauma, the way that I define it, is anytime our nervous system makes a decision to keep us safe. And it could be simply feeling safe and belonging. So we shifted ourselves a little bit to belong at school, or we shifted ourselves a little bit to belong at home. It doesn't have to always be in reaction to some huge situation, event, or series of events, although that is part can be part of it as well. But you know, I think to be human is to be traumatized. And um One of my Fridays with Vitamin videos is called Codependence in the Self, where I really go into, and I go into this in my work, is our codependence, our true self, and what is our true self, and how do we know what that is without our codependence, how necessary is codependence? Right, because it's like, how often is our true self versus our traumatic self just unrecognizable? Like, are they so different? recognizable to ourselves yeah like if someone were to meet us after we've turned into our true self versus our traumatized self are they like who are you like you're a totally different person sometimes a lot of my clients say well my friends and family are like wow you've shifted you've really you know done something something shifted so yeah it's very much often noticeable what is your truer nature what did you discover for me it was that 
I had permission. I had permission to speak. I had permission to love. I had permission to be strange and bizarre. Mm-hmm. But I just had permission. And permission was a huge thing for me when I was a child. I felt like I didn't I didn't have permission to really show any of my uniqueness. You know, I just had to be what my mom needed to, needed me to be. And so when I did that in a lot of my relationships, it just kept recreating my dynamic with my mother, where I just became who I, the person needed me to be. And they weren't even telling me that. Right. They weren't even saying. Sometimes they were, but most of the time it wasn't like, I need you to be this. I just had my feelers out for what I thought I needed to contort, right? Right. And so I don't have that contortion mechanism anymore. So I feel mm. really just free to be who I am, how I think, how I feel. Intimacy feels really, really safe to me. Um, I feel like I can, well, and I am fulfilling on my mission and purpose in life, which is to help people heal trauma from their systems so they could be who they were innately designed to be. And so I, I can lead, I trust myself to lead people through these processes where I didn't trust myself before. I didn't trust myself to lead. I didn't trust myself to love. I didn't trust myself enough so that people can surrender to my heart and where I'm taking Mm. them. So yeah, it's self-trust it's self-expression. It's permission to be, um, it's an expansion. It's also me really, really, really connecting to my femininity Mm. because a lot of this people pleasing stuff, I think regardless of what identify of gender we identify as, it's masculine. The people pleasing is masculine. Yeah. Huh. It can occur in like a feminine nurturing. But when we are dissociated from ourselves and what we feel, it's our masculine side. When we surrender to our desires and our preferences, and we give ourselves permission to feel and sense and notice all that's happening in our inner world. That's our mm. feminine surrendering to our emotions and our sensations unapologetically is our feminine, regardless mm. of what gender we identify as. So I've gotten really, really, really connected through my own this healing journey, my codependence recovery to my feminine. That sounds very lovely. <laughs> and what about the role of forgiveness through all of this? What do you mean by forgiveness? Just wonder, like in terms of the healing journey, and then just speak directly to what you've told me is that being molested at four years old, having this experience with your mom where you felt like you wanted to help control her reality, and just even everything you've said about coming into the world and being traumatized by our environment, maybe a block of really getting to our true nature is feeling angry. And I'm sure that's a real thing that we have to go through for a while at who even maybe kept us from being true to ourselves, how we were like exploited along the way, how we were traumatized along the way. Was forgiveness an essential piece in moving through all of this for you? Do you have to forgive the people that you feel took away some of your innocence? Good question. Um, when I look at forgiveness, I look at releasing blame Mm. or releasing some level of victimhood. Like you did Mm. this anger, like you said, um, I think there's so many different ways in which we can forgive. And it took me so long, so long, so many years, so many Mm. sessions, so much work. To go, really? I'm just going to not be pissed at that person for the rest of my life? Like, how is that possible? Like, mm-hmm. Why would I? They did this thing to me. They were so screwed up, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, I think what there is to notice is, number one, what role did I have in that? Mm-hmm. And this is from the point of view of codependence recovery. I'm not saying that there are no victims in any situation. That's not true. But in a codependent situation, what were you doing there? Okay, like I could say my ex-boyfriend raped me. He emotionally, psychologically, spiritually abused me. He constantly put me down. I can list for hours all the things that he did to me. And then there's the question, what was I doing there? Mm. 
what was I doing there? Mm-hmm. A guy rapes you and then you go and hang out with him again for another three years. Like, <laughs> what am I doing? What was I doing there? So I have to look, I had to look at what was my role in this? What was I doing there? What was I trying to prove? What was I thinking? You know, like, what was my role? So that's a huge part of forgiveness. What was my role in this? What did I contribute that had that dynamic happen? Mm. And then we look at when we're children, children, I just think is pure victimhood, right? Because we are, there are other people leading our reality. We have to surrender and succumb to their reality. For a lot of us, I think it's let's heal the impact that your parents' behavior had on you. Let's heal the impact. We can spend some time going, my mother did this and I hate her for this. Okay. Let's spend more time simply healing the impact of that behavior. Mm. And when we heal the impact of that behavior, we can't release it from our nervous system. Mm. Releasing it from our nervous system does not mean we now have to go hang out with the parent or the person who did that. We don't have to go hang out with them, but we are releasing the impact of their behavior from our nervous system. We are now free from it. We're now, we're not held by the trauma and the um, limited abilities that that trauma has put on us or limited trust or whatever, limited relationship to our emotions, whatever that is, you know, like trauma happens to you when you're a child and now your voice is taken away. Well, let's heal that whole impact. So you have your voice back. It's out of your system. It's released. It's quote forgiven. They're not in the perpetrator's spot for you anymore. Now you're released from that behavior. Now, oftentimes in my codependent work, one of the things that I really think it's important that I really try to drive home is the focus on blaming our parents. Yeah. Because the cycle of life didn't start with you and it didn't start with me. It didn't start with our parents. So if I go, I'm going to blame my mom for the rest of my life. Well, if I'm going to blame my mom, then she can blame her mom. And her mom can blame her mom. Everybody's blaming the mom before them. Nobody's standing there going, I'm a, you know, I'm going to take responsibility for this. and I'm going to handle this and heal this. So, you know, your mom isn't the last mom in your family tree. She's a combination of her mom and her parents. And then it, it keeps going. And so I, I think it's important. And I also think it's generic to spend a whole lot of time blaming our parents. It's a generic human <laughs> experience. It's a generic human reaction. So is heartbreak, which is the topic of your series. It's generic. Okay. We are moving through a human cycle. Every person on this planet with 8 billion heartbreaks happening. We're moving through a generic experience. What's not generic, I think, take the time to look at our place in the matter, to take the time to heal the impact of the stuff from our system so that we can live without the constraints of it. That is like, like a unique thing. Hopefully, eventually, it's not a unique thing. Hopefully, eventually, we start to learn at a very young age how to digest and heal traumas as they're happening. That's like, mm. I thought an idea, although there's a lot of social emotional learning in schools happening. But you know, like my, my dream and fantasy is that become part of our core, core curriculum is like, as traumas are happening, we get to notice them and cycle through them and heal them so that we're, we're living free from that stuff for our whole lives. Yeah. Like it's like the next semester that we have to go through, you yeah. know, like you go through a relationship at the end of it, you dedicate yourself, like it's required to process it. So you don't just carry on the trauma or carry on the blame or carry on the avoidance or stay under some illusion, you know, but we live in such like a fast paced world now that I feel like, you know, it just seems like people have so many tools to avoid. Think about apps, how just the nature of apps and how they're in the palm of our hand can just perpetuate so much avoidance and so much unhealing. Yeah. I mean, they influence and encourage the dissociation of self. Right. And that is, you know, something that we consciously or unconsciously are attracted to. Right. 
things that dissociate us from ourselves, codependent relationships, codependent sex, drugs, alcohol, social media, television, television. Right. So it, it's so habitual for us right. to choose dissociation from self. No. And this sovereignty comes into play, right? I'm going to generate my own experience. I'm not going to have someone, something, some substance generate my experience for me. I'm generating my experience. Mm. What is the first thing that comes to you about why you are thankful for the heartbreaks that you've gone through in life? Well, the number one heartbreak is my father dying. I mean, that's just still is like a thunderbolt that moves through my life 20 years later. And most other heartbreaks, I would say, are all the source of it is me breaking my own heart. Yeah. Me really coming to the conclusion, like, how did I yeah, disconnected from myself? And that's how that happened. All that thing happened, whether it was with boyfriend or getting fired from a job or some other sort of thing that felt heartbreaking or catastrophic. I can always find the way in which I broke my own heart, the way in which I led myself to that experience. Mm. And for a lot of my clients, there's this phase in sometimes in conscious codependence recovery that I call codependent regret, where we go, oh my gosh, I was codependent for X amount of years. I didn't even see it. Now that I see it, now that I see how I contributed to all that, there's like this regret. Like I yeah. can't, I did that thing and I wasn't even aware that I was doing it. I thought it was somebody else's fault or problem. And so now we regret having spent all these years in an unawakened version of ourselves. There's some shame or humiliation from the people we were doing those things around or with. And so, you know, part of this process is what I call dependent regret. So that's another piece of realizing for some of us how we've broken our own hearts. And I think that to live a fully integrated life, mm-hmm to simultaneously live with an open heart and a broken heart at the exact same time. Mm. Be able to expose mm. our open heart and our broken heart at the exact same time. Mm. Because we're all open and broken at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> right. Open and broken. I mean, I really think about an opening. An opening is a break. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I used to have this coach that used to always tell me, when your heart breaks, I hope that it breaks open. Um, and I'll never forget that. Mm. And look, the more we release blame, the freer we are to direct our own lives. Otherwise, we're just so at the mercy of other people. And, you know, I always say that codependence is blind because we're at the mercy of other people and we want them to love us in a certain way or provide for us in a certain way or listen in a certain way. And they may not know how to do that because a lot of us don't know how to listen really good and love really good, present really good. Like a lot of us don't know how to do that. So the best we can do is develop a deep, 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 deep relationship with ourselves and bring that kind of wholeness and safety to whatever we're doing and whoever we're with in life not expecting or needing everybody else to bring that. Yeah, I think that was something great that you spoke about was that through a breakup, you're given this opportunity to find yourself and to focus on yourself, to be in relation with yourself. I coined the word break upward. I'm curious what it might mean to you. Yeah, I think that's a great term. Are you you talking about specifically in romantic relationships? Anything. No, I really relate to you when you say that you broke your own heart. You know, that was really what inspired the podcast. It wasn't, thank you, heartbreak. Thank you to all my exes. Mm. Though I, I knew people would relate to that. When I thought about heartbreak, it was the ways in which I've broken my own heart throughout my life, you know, which of course is me getting into relationships and staying too long. Sure. But it's also been deeper and more varied than that. So break upward is not just romantic, it's whatever comes to you. Yeah, you know, it's romantic relationships, it's jobs, like 
I got fired from six jobs in a row. Like I couldn't keep a job. And, and um, one of the things is because I have, I'm a visionary and I've always had my own vision. So to work inside of somebody else's vision as a job was always really kind of hard for me. But also it was because I had such an inferiority complex and I always felt like I was in trouble when I wasn't in trouble at work. And so I would get fired and then would look at like, I know I created a lot of weird communication situations or I handed things late or I did not work to my potential in that job because of all of this fear that I had in my nervous system about belonging and not being good enough and feeling inferior and like everybody else had this power over me. And like, if I wasn't invited to a meeting, I made it mean that they hated me. Like it was just all of this stuff that I was manufacturing inside of me that had me not be able to be a part of the tribe at the job. So yeah, it's like so many ways in which we can break our own heart. And I really think that's the point of view that the most healing can happen from. And I just, I want to be clear. I'm not saying nobody's a victim. Nobody's ever doing anything to you. I don't know if I believe that. I know people say that, but I'm just saying from the point of view of codependence recovery, the most powerful position to stand in is how did I create that? Because Mm -hmm. it's so, it's so much of a codependent habit to not look at how we are the creator and the source of what's Mm -hmm. happening. It's Mm -hmm. such a codependent thing to go. They did that. They'll look at everybody else. I am the creator. Yeah. That definitely changes the conversation. You know, I remember thinking like, God, if I would just sit down on my therapist's couch and instead of talking about how depressed I am or I guess, you know, blaming other people would just talk about how I'm afraid, you know? And I also just think about like, yeah, instead of like going through all these storylines about heartbreak and what someone is doing to you, just stopping and asking yourself, how am I creating this? How am I allowing for this? But I think starting with I, especially when you don't feel like you know yourself or have honestly revealed yourself to others or even to yourself, I think it's probably a, a scary place to start with is the I when you've been pushing that to the back for so long. Really, it's perfect and such an important point. You know, a lot of my clients either have some sort of disorienting relationship with themselves, or they don't even have a self. Right. Right. Like I see this a lot in my work. There's a lot of really great phrases out there like self-love and self-healing and self-awareness. But what if you don't have a self to point that awareness to Mm. like, where, where is that located in me that I would even direct that awareness or self-love. So for some in my work, we are actually developing that self mm-hmm. we're reconnecting you to it or we are creating a connection that was never formed that mm-hmm. inner connection like oh okay yeah that's how i feel i didn't even know that that's how i felt right because we can't find that self until we go through my process of conscious codependence recovery or there's tons of processes out there well tell people how they can find you and work with you and also where they can listen to your videos, your YouTube. Yeah, thanks. So CherylFeidelman.com. Go to CherylFeidelman.com and you put your email address in and you'll get your free PDF. That's your free gift for signing up uh, my website. Uh, the free PDF of the three tenets of conscious codependence. The want to be wanted, the need to be needed, and the need to prove oneself. And that'll break down the developmental roots, common behavioral patterns, give you some questions to customize it to your own experience, then you're on my email list and you'll get, I put Fridays with Feidelman, so free video content. I have my free and monthly conscious codependence class, um, all sorts of free content that I put out there. I don't slam people. I'm not emailing my list like every single day, but you know, a couple of times a week. And then you'll also know about my upcoming programs and workshops and discounts on programs. And when you Uh, get your PDF, you'll have an opportunity to schedule your free decode your codependence call with me. So it's a 45 minute call where we go deep into what it is you might be looking for in your journey right now, give you some coaching and feedback. And if that resonates with you, we can see if one of my programs seems like a fit for you. Uh, And I do actually have a program coming up. And um, 
Yeah. One other thing that I wanted to say is when it comes to the relationship with self, a lot of us codependents, we go, this person doesn't see me. They don't see me as pretty or they don't Mm. respect me or they don't understand me. They don't get what I want. They don't get my Mm. desires. A big piece of this process is getting that for ourselves, like seeing ourselves the deep, intimate lens that we want others to see us. Mm. Noticing our own beauty, noticing our own hearts, Mm. being really clear and aligned with our own preferences. Everything we want somebody else to be for us, <laughs> and this is kind of bumper stickerish. It's not like I'm the first person to ever say this, but everything we want somebody else to be for us, we cannot find that person unless we're that for ourselves first. We just can't find that person. We can't find the level of intimacy that we want in another person unless they have for ourselves. It's really amazing right now to be hearing the things that you're saying and where I feel like I've come through this, I also am close to people that are right in the midst of this. And it's such a real thing to, you know, to hear people say like, this person just doesn't understand me. I need them to see me. Even what you were saying about, you know, now you get to be the bizarre or strange or quirky, you know, like that side of you. And how many people don't feel like they have permission to be that way in a relationship. And yet, it begins with you allowing for space to be that way for yourself. And I think sometimes it's like we want to be seen by others before we even see ourselves because we want to have them tell us what they see first. I think it's also uh, trying to satisfy some feeling of feeling safe, right? So when someone says, I need them to see me, it's often because they don't feel safe. And if this person sees me, then I would feel safe and I'll have this nervous Mm -hmm. system regulation. But oftentimes we want people to see what they don't have the ability to see in the way that we want them to see. So then we're not actually seeing them. Yeah. We're not seeing. No one's being seen. To what they have the ability to see or not see. But also the second tenet of conscious codependence is the need to be needed. So oftentimes when we say, I need them to see me, it's not actually a real need. Mm. It's not a real need. It's Mm. the illusion of a need. And so that's another thing that we go through in my work. Like, what is a need? What are other people for? (laughs) What are Mm -hmm. other people for? You know, these needs are illusions of needs. What needs are real? And what what is accurate or appropriate to want or need from a person, right? Another bunch of stuff we go through in my work. Well, thank you so much. And um, no, this is such important work. My dad called me, or I was talking to him yesterday. Also, what started this podcast was the awareness that, you know, I could lose and will lose my dad someday and just the fear of that. And he is an estate planner. So he works with people, you know, like through death. And he was talking to a client and they didn't sound well. And he goes, What's going on? He's like, My father died. And my dad goes, You know, when did that happen? They said, Three months ago. And my dad was just reflecting, like, God, they they still seem so beat up. And I was thinking, Three months is nothing. But I was like, people go through this for years. And I just think that, you know, your bravery and also putting that out there that, hey, your dad died 20 years ago and this is still the biggest heartbreak. This is still something that you experience. And like you said, you know, to still be able to be in the world with a broken heart and an open heart. And sometimes, you know, like the heartbreak gives us more incentive to have an open heart. We know what love is, what it can do, what it's there for, what we missed out on, what we want to have now. You know, you say about asking more questions. So anyway, I mean, from you saying that your biggest heartbreak was your dad and also just the heartbreak that you've had and developed within yourself, I just really relate to it. And I appreciate you being, you know, bold enough to say that something that happened 20 years ago is still something that, you know, is a visceral experience today. And no one should be ashamed of that. And I just think that that is a reality of life. Maybe not for everyone, but it can be. Yeah, yeah. People have permission to grieve as long as the grieving is happening. And grief can be hugely transformational. And allowing the grief can be hugely transformational.
If this episode resonated with you, it would mean the absolute world if you could pass it on and let other people know about it. How you can support this podcast is really just sharing it, telling people about it. If you know someone that's hurting in their heart, tell them about Thank You Heartbreak. And if you want to be a guest on Thank You Heartbreak, reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at Thank You Heartbreak, or you can email me directly at Chelsea. C-H-E-L-S-E-A at breakupward, B-R-E-A-K-U-P-W-A-R-D dot com. And I would love to show up for you as you begin to show up in more wise and clarifying and secure ways for yourself. Thanks for listening, everyone.